So we're about to consider Psalm 8, and uh, let's do that. Uh, well, we'll pray first, and then we'll get into it. Uh, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, we can come again uh, to your word. And so we trust that this is the word that you want us to hear today. And so we pray that you would help us to listen carefully. Uh, we pray that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit uh, truths about your Son uh, and help us to understand him more and love him more and understand, understand ourselves better too. Uh, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 8, I've, I've called the talk today, Keeping Life in Perspective. Uh, it's, it's an important thing to uh, get a proportion of things, to get things in balance. And Psalm 8 is a good uh, text to help us with uh, some big questions. So Psalm 8, uh, a Psalm of David, to the choir master according to the gitteth. That's the the, uh, the heading. Uh, we're not sure what a gitteth is. There's a few suggestions, but they're not going to help us much today. But uh, that's the heading, a Psalm of David. All of the Psalms in the first book are Psalms of David, uh, in the first of the five books. So here we are, Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Some years ago, uh, Hawthorne played the Sydney Swans in the AFL Grand Final. And uh, if you're looking at the picture, you can see that uh, Hawthorne lost. The Sydney Swans players were jubilant and the Hawthorne players were shattered. After the game, the Hawthorne coach, Alistair Clarkson, said this, This isn't a true tragedy. True tragedy, as I said to the players after the game, is what happened to that poor lady in Brunswick last week. Now, if you've invested heavily in playing football, if you've trained for years, if you've done the pre-season and you've got all the way through to the grand final, you've set your heart on winning the thing, of course you're going to be a bit sad if you come up short. But Alistair Clarkson put their loss in perspective. He said it's not a tragedy because the week before there'd been a terrible murder in the city of Melbourne. And he said that's a tragedy. What he was saying in effect was this is just a game. It might be sad but it's not tragic. I heard it said once that a fool is a person who lacks a sense of the proportion of things. So if you make a big thing little and a little thing big, you're getting things out of whack, and that's what fools do. Fools make mountains out of molehills, or sometimes molehills out of mountains, depending on whether they underestimate something or whether they elevate the importance of things. Getting things in perspective, getting things in proportion, is a mark of wisdom. And so Alistair Clarkson got it about right there. Psalm 8 is a, a psalm that helps us to put humans, ourselves, in perspective and in proportion in relation to God's creation and in relation to what we have been created to do. And so the psalm starts, it's in three fairly clear sections, and, and the first two verses start with praise, uh, which is a good way to begin anything. Uh, and this is a sense in which we, we get our bearings. Now, the first 
Psalms 1 and 2 are introductory psalms to the whole collection of the 150. They help us get our bearings for the whole whole set of, of psalms in the book. Uh, but Psalms 3 to 6 are lament psalms. They're psalms where the psalmist, David, is pouring out the sorrows of his heart over circumstances in his life which he's pleading with God to change. We'll think a little bit more about that in a moment. But Psalm 8 is the Bible's first praise psalm. Psalm 7 finishes with an intention to praise. And so the very end of Psalm 7 says, I will give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness. I will sing the praises of the name of the Lord Most High. In other words, when God has dealt with the problem that he's confronting in Psalm 7, David says, I will praise him when, when he's come through as I know he will. Well, Psalm 8 gets right down to work and it starts right from the beginning with praise. And it says, O Lord, our Lord. Now, we've said this before, but if you see Lord written in capital letters in our English Bibles, that is a translation of the Hebrew name for God, which is Yahweh. O Yahweh, our Lord. Yahweh, our Master. It's a declaration of who God is. Now notice this is our Lord. Yahweh is our Lord. This is a song which is read, read, uh, written to be uh, sung by a congregation. This is an affirmation that this is the God that we together worship. Now the faith that the Bible represents to us is never an individualistic faith. It has an individual dimension in as much as we need to come to personal faith, but it has to be expressed corporately. Uh, biblical faith is a faith that unites us not just with God but with others and so here's a psalm that calls the whole congregation to praise Yahweh now when it says uh, O Yahweh our Lord how majestic is your name in all the earth name is a very important word throughout the Bible Uh, God says don't take my name in vain it really matters to God that we honour his name the name is a summary of what a person is now, when we talk about God, uh, one of my favourite Old Testament commentators is a, an Irish commentator called Alec Matia, a wonderful godly man and a very deep thinker and a, a beautiful writer and speaker. He says, think of it this way, God is like God's surname. Yahweh is like his personal name, his Christian name. Uh, and he invites his people to address him by name. Now, that's the Hebrew way of, of saying the personal name of God, but but God's like a description, it's a title, but Yahweh is a name. And, and so we can address him by name. Now when Yahweh does this, he's revealing himself. He's revealing himself in all of his holiness and truth. Have you ever heard the phrase uh, that, that person's a closed book? Uh, that means you, you don't know much about them. They haven't given much of themselves away, so you don't really know them. They're like a book that stays shut. Yahweh is not a closed book. If he didn't reveal himself, we could know nothing about him because he's God and we're not. We're so far beneath the level of his majesty that we would have no prospect of having useful knowledge of him except that he's spoken. He's revealed himself. He is not a closed book. And he reveals himself by his name because his name says a lot about him. Now, when we hear about the name and when we hear about Yahweh, that should take us back in our thinking to Exodus chapter 3. Now in Exodus chapter 3, Yahweh is commissioning Moses to return to his people, the Israelites who are in Egypt as slaves, and he says, you're to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Moses is uh, a bit reluctant, he's a bit hesitant, and he says, well, who should I say sent me? And uh, why would they listen to me? And so Yahweh says to him, I am who I am. This is what you were to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. So the name Yahweh 
uh, as best as we can translate it into English, means I am who I am, or I am what I am, or I will be who I will be. Uh, Yahweh is present tense. He always is. There's never been a time when he hasn't been. There will never be a time when he won't be. Yahweh is always present. I am who I am. That's what Yahweh means. And so as we think of Yahweh, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name. We go back to that, that revelation of God. Well, who is he? Exodus 6 fills out the picture a bit further. Uh, Yahweh constantly speaking with Moses, truths about himself that will help Moses lead the people out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land. In Exodus 6, Yahweh reveals himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. In other words, he's a God who reveals himself to people, ordinary people. Uh, he's a God who makes himself known to individuals. Uh, he's a covenant maker. He makes uh, a binding covenant with his people. He says, I'll do this for you. You must do this for me. Uh, he's a covenant maker who can be relied on to keep his word. Part of that covenant is that they'll live in a land that he's graciously provided for them. So he's the land giver. But he's the one who rescues his people from slavery in Egypt. So he's the saviour. He's the deliverer. He pays a price for their rescue. He's their redeemer. And they're his people. He says, you are mine. One of the great statements of the Bible is, I will be your God. You will be my people. Imagine that, belonging to a God who is this good. All of those things should come to mind whenever we see the name Lord written in capital letters. It's, it's, uh, it's the translation of Yahweh, the great I am, the one who comes into relationship with his people. Now, uh, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Majesty is power and beauty and authority and greatness. It's inspiring awe. It's something that should make us fall down in reverence. When we contemplate the majesty of God, the greatness and beauty of God, it, it should elicit from us praise because this is someone who is entirely worthy of that. How great is your, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name. You have set your glory above the heavens. Glory is who God is. Our glory is a word which speaks of weightiness and, and brilliance and beauty and magnificence, splendor and radiance. All of these are sort of things that, that they're, they're qualities and characteristics that are associated with the God who's revealed himself. He's a majestic and a glorious God. Now it's right to praise a God of, of that order. It, he's the only God there is, but he's a God who's revealed himself in his majesty and in his glory. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote a book about the Psalms and he says that he thinks that praise is inner health made audible. He says it's a hard heart that can't or won't praise. He says people who never praise anything are hard-hearted people. And so the, the idea that Yahweh is worthy of our praise means that we should praise him because if we don't, we're robbing ourselves. Uh, it's just good for us. It's not like he's lonely and needs our pats on the back, not at all. It's just right that we praise him. Because you see, Lewis says that uh, when we praise something, it completes our enjoyment. I think I've spoken about this before, but if I go to a concert, if I go to the football, if I see something beautiful, when I come home after being with Mafra Community Church, you know, people say, how was it? I say, it was great. They're good people. They're lovely people. It's good to be there. I praise, you know. That's just how it goes. You want to share the good things in life. You want to tell others about it so that they can enjoy it too. Praise completes our enjoyment. The person who lacks the capacity to praise is robbing themselves. They're stunting their personality. God is worthy of our praise because there's nothing 
more praiseworthy than the one who is majestic and glorious. So in verse 2, David the psalmist contrasts Yahweh's majesty with the frailty of human beings. And so he says, um, Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Uh, that's in contrast, the, 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 the frailty, the fragility of not adult human life but infant human life is contrasted with the eternality, the majesty and the glory of the eternal Yahweh. Now you've possibly heard the phrase out of the mouth of babes. It's usually misused when it's used as a, as a statement. Um, it doesn't mean, oh, don't kids say wonderfully cute things. Uh, there used to be a program on American TV, I think it may have been shown out here as well, kids say the darndest things. And so it's cute and it's funny when kids say things and, you know, doting grandparents and parents laugh, haw haw, at, at these extraordinary things that, that, that kids say that, that speak more than we think the kid actually understands. But that's not what is meant in Psalm 8. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. So what the babies and infants are saying has something to do with the enemies that constantly surround God's people, that by opposing God's people are actually opposing God himself, foes, the enemy, the avenger. Now we've heard about the enemies before because back in Psalm 2, we realised that the kings of the earth have taken their stand against the Lord and his anointed. Psalm 2 develops these ideas and it says that the only safe thing for the kings of the earth, the peoples of the world to do, is to find refuge in Yahweh's kingly son. Uh, he says, I've set you on my holy hill. So Psalm 2 is a psalm about Yahweh's ideal king. Ultimately, we know that that's the Lord Jesus. In the first instance, it was David. But Jesus being the descendant of David, great David's greater son, uh, we know that he's the one who fulfills that. But we see all around us enmity expressed towards God and expressed towards his king. And, and so that's a theme which is picked up in these psalms that precede Psalm 8. These lament psalms, one of the things that David pours his heart out to God about is the impact that enemies are having on his life. These enemies are people who oppose him and who oppose God's reign through him. And, and the theme of enemies runs right the way through the book of Psalms. And, of course, we're surrounded by people that oppose us. We're surrounded by ideological forces that want to make us compromise our straight walk with God. Um, and so these enemies, we can relate to that. Well, there's something to do with the utterances of babies and infants, which is part of God's purpose in silencing or stilling the voice of the, uh, the enemies and the activity of the enemies. What it means is that God uses the strength of the praise of the hum humble and the vulnerable to overcome his enemies. Now, this, this is an image that's being used here. Who are the, the babies and infants? It may be a reference to Israel because Israel was just a little country. It was surrounded by much more powerful countries. But there's a pattern and a theme here that runs all the way through Scripture again. God opposes the proud and he raises up the humble. God chooses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He, changes, he, shame, he uses the weak things of this world to 
challenge the strong. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 1 speaks of. Um, because you see, the glory has to go to God. And so all the way through the Bible, you'll see instance after instance where God does things that at a human level you might count as unusual, but that's how he presses forward his agenda to restore his blessing to the world. So God uses the strength of weak and vulnerable ones, here characterised as babies and infants, as a part of his means of pushing back against evil and of eventually winning the world back to him. Now, Alec Matea again, he wonders where David got this idea from. He speculates, there's no, we can't sort of pin it down exactly, but uh, David's own experience of battling as just a young man, the great and fearsome Philistine giant Goliath, may have had something to do with this. He's writing it as the king, he's looking back over his life. Is he thinking about that day when he refused Saul's armour and took five smooth stones and went to battle the champion of the, of the Philistines? Because when he did, Goliath, who was an enemy of Yahweh and who at this point is poised to put an end to the champion of of Israel, uh, the ancestor of the Lord Jesus. This is, if you look behind the scenes here, what you're seeing is spiritual warfare taking place that, that threatens the survival of the holy line that's going to lead to our salvation. David goes out, this individual equipped with nothing but a few stones and his faith in Yahweh. And he says to the giant who's taunting him, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. I come to you in the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel's armies, the God of heaven's armies. He says, you've defied him. And so David takes him on in the strength. That's how God operates. He gives strength to the weak to equip them to do his work so that all the glory will go to him where it belongs. And so we've considered Yahweh. The psalmist has, has, has helped us to understand something of Yahweh. He has contrasted his strength, his, etern- his eternal nature with the frailty of the human condition. But then he turns and he addresses his thoughts to humanity in general. And he puts humanity in perspective in light of who God is. So here we find the former shepherd David uh, contemplating God's glorious creation. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. So David seems to be looking at the heavens. He's probably out looking after the sheep. He looks up, no light pollution where he was. And so he can he gets a beautiful view of the immensity of the universe and all the stars that make it up. Now, if we want to understand these things, we know more about it because we've got telescopes and we can actually identify things. But think about this for a moment. We live uh, the third rock from the sun, planet Earth, just a fairly small, insignificant planet uh, in a solar system, which is a a part of a much bigger unit of the universe. We live as a planet in the sun's system, which, which belongs to the Milky Way. So when David looks up, he, he doesn't know the things that we know, but all he's struck with is the immensity of space and the, the stars that fill it. He says they're the work of your fingers. In other words, it's child's play to God to have made these sorts of things. That's how awestruck in wonder David is with, with the God uh, that he's praising. We now know, scientists uh, tell us, that the Milky Way is comprised of between 100 billion and 400 billion stars. So the sun's just one of them. There could be as many as 400 billion stars in the Milky Way. But the Milky Way itself is only one 
out of 170 billion galaxies. Now, sit down and write all those zeros out and try to figure it out. Space looks pretty big to me when I look up into the stars, but our, our solar system is just a tiny little component of a much bigger galaxy, the Milky Way, which is itself a tiny fly speck uh, in, in comparison to the rest of the universe. 170 billion galaxies make up our observable universe. So when, when David looks up, when I look at the heavens, what is man? He feels so insignificant. He feels so small. Has anybody noticed me? He might be wondering. Now, if you want to put all that in perspective, think about this. If we take Australia, the size of Australia, we're thinking about proportion here, think of the whole continent of Australia. If you want to get a sense of how our solar system relates to our Milky Way, the galaxy of which we're a part, let's say that Australia, the map of Australia, represents the whole Milky Way. And let's go down in scale, down through Victoria to the little town of Mafra and into the Mafra Hall where we're watching this video. When you have your cup of tea or coffee after church, compared to the whole of Australia, which represents the Milky Way, our solar system could fit into your cup of tea or your cup of coffee. That's how tiny the solar system is to this one galaxy, one out of 170 billion. Yahweh, our great creator God, has created an immense universe. And David's right to look up and say, well, what about me? When I look at the heavens that you've made, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Man as in mankind, he's speaking about there. The son of man, the son of Adam is actually the word that's used uh, in terms of just people, God's creation. If everything's so big and I feel so small, how, how is it you know about me? This is a matter of wonder and praise to David because he's sure God does know him because he's revealed himself to him. So what is man? Well, first of all, we've got to settle who is God and we've already seen he's majestic and glorious. But he's also the one who is intimately concerned with us. He's the one who reveals himself, the one who speaks to us, the one who reaches out to save us. So God isn't just some vast, far-off person. He's a person who stoops low to interact with the people that he's made. He lets them know. So what is man? Well, it's man is creation's pinnacle. Uh, of all the things that God created, humankind is the, is the very top of the, uh, top of the range. We're told here, just below heavenly beings. Um, you have crowned him with glory and uh, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honour. Now that's coronation language, uh, the language that's used to describe the coronation of a king or a queen. Now the last coronation that the English-speaking world, well, you know, our part of the world had, uh, was the coronation in 1953 of, 19, was it 52? 52, of uh, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth of blessed memory. Uh, I think it's May this year, we'll be having another coronation, watch carefully. Uh, but the coronation was a glorious affair in Westminster Abbey where uh, fine clothes and, and wonderful jewellery were adorned on, on Her Majesty uh, to represent uh, the, the majesty of her office. Uh, yet that's the language that's applied to humankind in general in Psalm 8. 
Now, all of this should remind us again uh, that this passage here has echoes uh, throughout the Bible, but all of this should remind us of, of the story of creation, where in Genesis 1.26, after having created humankind, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing. So God creates humans and uh, he says, I'm making you in my image to have dominion, which is another, a synonym, another word for royal rule. Now, what does it mean to be made in God's image? Um, in 1979, a statue of the Assyrian governor Hadad Yissi was found. This is from the 8th or 9th century BC, but it was discovered in 1979. It's now housed in the Damascus Museum in Syria. So this statue was found, but the inscription on its base says that this is the image and the likeness of the king. Now, the Assyrian Empire was vast, uh, and so to assert the fact that he was in charge of the whole vast domain of the Assyrian Empire, Hadad Yissi had statues of himself made and distributed right round the empire. Uh, rulers everywhere have done those sorts of things. And so when you go out and you see a statue, you know it's not the real king, but it's an image and a likeness of him to remind you that you are in his territory. It's a representation of the king who lives in Nineveh. Who are human beings? We are made in the image and likeness of God. That's another way of saying we're God's representatives on the earth that actually belongs to him. We rule it under his overall dominion. That's a very exalted status to be given to humankind. David looks at the heavens and he says, What is man that you are mindful of him? the son of man that you care for him. And he answers his own question. You have crowned him with glory and honour. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet. David knows Genesis 1 and he accepts it by faith that this is a true statement of who people are. So God is great. Humans are very frail and yet they're people of dignity because God has said so and he's trusted them with an enormous responsibility. So humans are God's representatives on the planet. We're his ambassadors, we're his stewards of his creation. We're to look after the world that he's charged us to care for. Dominion is the word that's used here and that means responsibility, royal rule over the earth under God's overall rule. So God exercises his rule through humans. So creation is made to reveal God's glory. We read that in Romans 1 as well, and, and obviously it does. It inspires our awe and our reverence when we're switched on properly. And to get ourselves as humans into perspective, we need to understand that we belong to God. If we think of ourselves as belonging to ourselves, we're badly out of whack and our thinking is seriously disproportioned and foolish. We need to get a good balance between humility and dignity. David looks at the heavens and says, what is man that you're mindful of him? He answers his own question. That's right, you've crowned him with glory and honour. So we're tiny compared to God's majesty, but there's a greatness to us because of what God has done for us and of the things he's said about us. We need, if we're to have our personality balanced and, and our self, sense of ourselves in perspective, we need to understand that we need, we're humble before God and his greatness but there's a dignity which has attached itself to who we are because of what God's done through us and for us. 
And so the psalm finishes the way it began. It brackets uh, the content that's, that's inside. That's like a sandwich. Here's the bread on either side of the sandwich. O Lord, our Lord, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The psalm begins with praise. It finishes with praise. It, it, the praise is permeated all the way through. So God's greatness is the great theme of this. So what can we say about God? Well, he's majestic, but he's knowable. He's awesome and he cares. But this psalm throws up a challenge. Do we see all things under humans' feet? Is that a fair statement of life? What about these foes and enemies, the Avengers? Have they been silenced by God's little ones? Because as I look around, and no doubt as you look around too, we live in a world where illness and injury and accident are everyday occurrences, where cancer and all sorts of other things can badly interfere with the quality of life that we enjoy. And, and that's just a part of everyday experience. We live in a world that's ravaged by natural disasters. We live in a world where warfare is um, a daily issue for many, many people across the planet. Is this a planet that looks like uh, everything has been put under our feet and we're ruling it well. Well, obviously the answer has to be no. So this is where we need to put the psalm in perspective too. Psalm 1 and 2 are like the introductory units to the entire collection of psalms. They're like a doorway through which we look at the rest. Psalm 1 and 2, uh, Psalm 1 speaks about the righteous man, the man who is blessed because he lives by God's law. Psalm 2 introduces us to Yahweh's anointed ruler, who will one day rule the world with a rod of iron. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You can either make him your enemy and be pummeled with a rod of iron, figuratively, or you can find refuge and salvation in this king that God says will reign over the entire world. We see in Jesus both things. He's the one who lived according to God's law and he's the one who rules with all of God's authority and who will return one day to establish God's righteous rule on earth and put an end to the need for ambulances and flood relief and, uh, and, and cannons. Um, Jesus said Psalm 80 is about him. He has said as much in Matthew 21 when he was in the, uh, the temple in Jerusalem and he'd just been welcomed into Jerusalem and people were singing Hosanna to the son of David, praise the son of David. He's in the temple and the children there are shouting out Hosanna to the son of David and the scribes and the teachers of the law say silence them they said that's the sort of thing that should only be said about God and Jesus said in response he said have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise Jesus said what they're doing is entirely appropriate it's proportionate he didn't say oh, I'm God but he almost could have He's saying the praise that the Old Testament ascribes to Yahweh alone is worth coming towards him. And he uses Psalm 8 language to, to, to point that out. Psalm 8 is about the Lord Jesus. Well, the book of Hebrews, and in 1 Corinthians as well, Psalm 8 is directly referenced to help us to understand the ministry of Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 2, having quoted at length from Psalm 8, the writer of the book of Hebrews at verses 8 and 9 says, At present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to him, that's Jesus, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. 
So we don't see yet, but we do see. What do we see? We see Jesus who was crucified, who was raised from the dead, who's been raised to the right hand of God where he reigns on high and will one day come back to assert his rule over the whole creation on behalf of those who are patiently waiting for him. So is the world as it should be? No, it's not. Are humans ruling the planet as God intended? No, they don't. But humanity's glorious destiny, as it's described in Psalm 8, is only completely fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. He's the only human who ever lived righteously, like Psalm 1 instructs. But he's the king of Psalm 2 who will one day come to put all things right. He's the true Adam. He's all that Adam was created to be. Uh, that language of being made in the image of God that Adam was supposed to live up to, he failed terribly and so do we. But Jesus lived up to it. So he's the true Adam, the true human who when we put our faith and our trust in his atoning death on the cross, where he paid for our sins in his blood, he restores us into God's image. Uh, he's the world's true king who's going to restore God's true rule in the world which will see no more cancer, no more illness, no more fighting, no more floods or famines. All of those things will be done in the new creation that Jesus will bring in. He's the one who conquered in weakness. When he was crucified on the cross, he looked like a failure. But what the world despised as weak and foolish was the instrument that God used to defeat the enemy and to defeat all that stood against him. Because when Jesus was raised triumphant from the grave and is now seated at God's right hand, uh, that's a sign of his great kingship, his authority. That's when he was crowned with glory and honour. And so 2 Timothy 2 verses 11 to 12 tell us that if we've died with him and that's what it means to come to faith in him, we set ourselves aside and say the life you lived, Lord Jesus, is my life now. I'll die to myself, I'll live for you. If we've died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Our future destiny is caught up with the Lord Jesus. Where he's gone, he'll call us. Where he is, his people will be. When he returns to earth to set up his kingdom, he promises that we will share his reign with him as people remade truly in the image of God. And so with all that in mind, we should join the psalmist. We should join David in saying, O Lord, O Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And we should fall to our knees in wonder and say, and you care for us. Let's pray. Uh, loving Heavenly Father, these are great and glorious words, words that really do invite our wonderment, our reverence and our awe, uh, words which should draw from our lips fervent praise for your goodness, your greatness, uh, and, and words that should inspire just the wonder that a God as great as all that has set his love on us. And so we know that you revealed yourself in creation. You revealed yourself through the word. You, you have revealed yourself supremely through your son, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Please help us to endure uh, faithfully in a world where we're opposed often on every side and where enemies are normal. Uh, please help us to endure in faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. Uh, help us to endure as people uh, ready to praise you for all that you've done. And help us to endure as people of humility who understand our dignity in Christ, uh, looking ahead to that day when he returns and we will share his reign with him. Uh, Father, we, we ask that you would stir us up in all these things 
um, and, and cause us to live lives worthy of you, our great God and King. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.